0: Well, overseas right now, there is a lot of tension happening. And It's probably quite an understatement. Uh, perhaps one of the things, uh, rumours, whether it's true or not, that you've heard along the grapevine, is the threat of potential nuclear war. It's a scary threat. Uh, it's a terrifying threat, because we all know what that would mean. We know what a weapon like a nuclear warhead is capable of doing. It's capable of flattening entire cities in an instant. And in some sense, we kind of sit in awe and in wonder and in terror at those who threaten to wield this weapon. But may I say there is a bigger and stronger weapon in the spiritual world that is far more powerful than this. Far more powerful, one which has eternal consequences. It's a weapon that's mightier than any other. And this weapon is the word of God. The Word of God is powerful enough to have created the entire universe and all the elements in it. And even today, the universe is being upheld by this powerful Word. This Word, it became flesh in the man of Jesus, and by the Holy Spirit, God speaks to us through this Word, illuminating them through the Scriptures. The Bible itself, is full of psalms and proverbs and prophecies and letters and all kinds of other things... And as we'll soon see, it is the weapon of choice for the word himself, the man Jesus, in combating and overcoming the enemy, the devil, in Matthew 4. So today, as we look at the temptation of Jesus, uh, let's begin with all of this in the back of our minds as we go to point one, uh, the devil is real. Do we have the slides? Can I pop one of those up? Thanks, John. Perfect. I might borrow that from you. Now, I'm a a bit of a fan of uh, those coupon codes you see uh, in the mailboxes or online. Uh, And these coupon codes and discounts, they often come with a little asterisk attached to them. Uh, It's a little clarifying mark that tells you there's something that you do need to know about this. At face value, it may not be exactly what you think. Now, when I bring up the topic of the devil uh, and the claim that the devil is real, I think it absolutely has to come with this little clarifying mark. Because when I make this statement, when I say that the devil is real, all of you are going to have your own ideas about what this means. Uh, You're all going to have some kind of uh, baggage that comes along with the concept of the devil that's probably slightly different to the person sitting next to you. Now, I think part of the reason for this is that we don't often talk about Satan all that much in church. Um, It's definitely not high on my priorities to talk about. It's not my favorite topic. And perhaps this is one of the things that fuels uh, my ignorance on this. But I think another thing which is uh, more common, uh, another reason we have different ideas of who Satan is, is because of pop culture, like movies and TV shows and books like C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. Uh, All of these, for better or for worse, have shaped our thinking on this subject over the years. So perhaps uh, for some of you sitting here tonight, uh, you might think he's the little red man with the horns and the pitchfork. Uh, Perhaps you're thinking completely opposite to this. You're the type of person who rejects that idea completely, and instead you opt for Satan to be this kind of abstract force, right? a force that's the root of all of your day-to-day troubles, the source of all your temptations, the root cause of all of your sins. And perhaps some of you don't believe is real at all, or just simply unsure. So I include the asterisk here because I want to remind us to be careful Not to drag any of our own baggage, not to drag any of our own preconceptions of who Satan or what Satan is into this scene here in Matthew 4. In fact, it's very important as we look to the temptations that we get our idea of who the devil is from the scriptures alone. I want to remind us to swim between the flags, which I just threw in there as a shameless plug for the directory. You'll notice at the back of that there. Um, That is to keep our understanding of Satan kind of within the bounds of the Bible, as grounded in scripture as possible, not venturing outside of this in search for something more. So that being said, uh, what does the Bible actually say about the devil? Now firstly, I think uh, it's important to point out that the Bible's hardly concerned with where he came from. It's hardly concerned with what he looks like. And so if you're caught up in either of these two things, it's probably the first sign you're going down the wrong rabbit hole. Now, what God wants us to know about Satan, what the Bible tells us about Satan, is how he operates and how we, through Christ, can overcome him. These are the things that should concern us. We shouldn't be venturing down theoretical debates about his origins, not questioning what he looks like and what forms he takes, but rather how we can best defend ourselves against his schemes and how through Christ we can overcome him. And so that being said, here in Matthew 4, we're given a huge insight into these things, a huge insight into the devil's methods of attack. And we'll soon see in this text that the devil is someone who attacks us with his words. He operates kind of with a power of suggestion or argument. He introduces thoughts and ideas into the minds of his victims. Specifically aimed, and this is really important, his specific aim is to cause doubt and uncertainty towards the promises of God and his works. Satan's job is to cause doubt in us, to cause us to have uncertainty towards the promises of God and his works. That's Satan's MO, that's his, his goal to cause doubt and ultimately to cause us to reject God's word, to split us apart from God and his promises. And if Satan does this, then he's won. Uh, Martin Luther had a lot to say about this, um, but he summed it up in this way. He said the main object of the devil is to lead us to ignore and utterly cast away both God's word and his works. And we'll see this demonstrated here in Matthew 4. So to kind of sum up... Uh, everything so far, as we approach Matthew 4, we see Jesus has specific encounters with the devil in today's passages. Uh, today's passage. Uh, to sum it up, I'll put it on the screen here. One, the devil is real. Two, the power lies in his words, particularly those that cause us to doubt God's word and to doubt his works in the world. Three, which I haven't addressed yet, but I think it's important to know, he is a defeated enemy in the hands of Christ. If we get these three things down, if we have this understanding of Satan will be doing very, very well this evening, and it will help keep us stay on track with what we're about to see in Matthew 4. So any other burning questions, any other speculations or ideas, at least for now, if we can, try and set them aside, and let's focus on these three things as we dive into Matthew. So if you have your Bibles tonight, uh, it's a good passage to keep your Bibles open in front of you and to follow along as best you can. We're going to start at verse 1. So Matthew 4, one. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. We're going to stop there. So here's Jesus. Remember, this is coming off the back of his baptism, which Reich took us through last week. Uh, One of the biggest moments of his life, right? The sky rips apart, revealing the spirit of God. It descends on Jesus like a dove and a voice from heaven proclaims, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So this phrase from his baptism is really important here. This is my son. That's the word of God. That's the word of the father to Jesus. You need to keep that in mind because this plays a vital role in how the devil decides to attack Christ. You see, after this triumphant celebration at his baptism, the first thing the Spirit does is it leads him into the wilderness where he'll be tempted by the devil. And so here's Jesus led into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, any of you on top of your biblical theology would know that uh, the Israelites, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and so there's a bit of an overlap here. They're sensing Jesus as being this new Israel in this scene. But here's Jesus 40 days without food. And so you can probably guess what he's feeling at this point. He hasn't had his wheat bix for 40 days and 40 nights. And so if you're not sure what he's feeling, uh, Mark, not Mark, Matthew, sorry, our gospel author, uh, being Captain Obvious, he spells it out for us in verse two. He says, after 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. Now, I'm a grazer. Um, I can't really go more than half an hour without food. Uh, In fact, I get pretty hangry uh, at the slightest sign of hunger. But here's Jesus 40 days in, literally, humanly speaking, on the brink of starvation. He's weak, he's starving to death, and along comes the devil, along comes the tempter, and he targets Jesus' hunger in this first temptation. He targets his need for food, his fleshly appetite. He says to Jesus, "'If you are the Son of God,' tell these stones to become bread. He's kind of saying, you you look awfully hungry. I mean, you are the beloved son of God. What's happening? You're stuck out here in the wilderness, nothing to eat. Is he really looking after you? So use use some of your creative power. Turn these stones into bread. And I mean, like, the stones, when you're this hungry, you start to get delusional. They kind of look like bread already, don't they? He targets Jesus' stomach. But there's something far more profound going on here. And he may have picked up on it. See, the devil, he's not just targeting Jesus' stomach, he's targeting the truth of God's claim back when he was being baptised. This is my son whom I love. Well, Satan now, he's trying to lay lay a seed of doubt in Jesus' mind. He says, if you are the son of God, if what God said to you just before was true, tell these stones to become bread. You see, I think this temptation, I think we all get the bread thing. We know he's hungry. Turn the stones into bread, he'll be satisfied. But the other thing Satan's doing here is he's attacking the truth of God's word. He's tempting Jesus to doubt what God had said to him a couple of weeks earlier. If you are the son of God, since you are apparently the chosen one, the Messiah, why not prove it? He's causing Jesus to second guess. Right, to second-guess whether God's words were actually true or not, to second-guess whether the Father really was well-pleased with him. There's a kind of Garden of Eden-type temptation here. You know, did, did God really say that you're his son? Why not prove it? Turn the stones into bread, then you'll have no shadow of a doubt in your mind. Now, when it comes to these things, some of us might be thinking, well, then why doesn't he do it? Why doesn't he just turn the stones into bread? You know, he has the power to do this, so why doesn't he? Now, the first argument to this is that Jesus, potentially, he's identifying with us as sinners. So if you remember his baptism, he had a baptism of repentance, which he didn't need to do. Jesus had no repenting. There's a sense in which he's identifying with the people he's coming to save. And so some will say, well, if he was to use his creative powers here, there's a sense in which he's kind of unsheathing something that we don't have access to so he ceases to identify with us in our temptations, as Hebrews kind of says around this point. So in other words, he, he's withholding his God abilities, is what I would call them. So through this trial, he can identify with us in our weaknesses, but in this case succeed, where Israel and we ultimately fail. But the other reason, which I think is critical for understanding the temptation... The other reason he doesn't just turn all the stones into bread is because this would have demonstrated a distrust in the words of the Father back in 317. Right, he could either trust the words of the Father or he could doubt them. He could doubt the truthfulness of the claim. And in that moment of doubt, turn to the more spectacular miracle of turning rocks into bread as confirmation that he is in fact the beloved son, but in doing this would have confirmed his distrust in the word of God. So not only is he identifying with us in our weakness, but he's showing us what it looks like to trust the word of God, not to appeal to something bigger and more miraculous. So Jesus, in this, instead of taking Satan's bait, uh, he responds. He responds to the devil and he does this with the scriptures. In fact, he does this each and every time. He pushes back uh, back on Satan in Matthew 4 whenever he's tempted. He uses the word of God as his primary weapon. And by the end, he demonstrates for us all just how weak Satan truly is to this form of attack. And so with this, we're going to go on to point two. On your outlines, Jesus shows us that the devil has been defeated. So with this first temptation to turn stones into bread, Jesus fights back by quoting the scriptures. He rebuts Satan. He says... It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is a quote from Deuteronomy. Yes, God knows that we need bread to survive. Uh, We even in the the Lord's Prayer we recite that. Give us today our daily bread. It kind of has a double meaning. We, We do need bread to survive. God knows we need it. He gives us all these things. But we also know that we need to live on the bread of life, the word himself. So God knows we need bread to survive, He knows that we all have to eat. But he also knows that there is another type of famine, a famine that's causing the starvation and death of many around the world even today, but it's a spiritual starvation. And the remedy for this is to live by every word that pours out from the mouth of God. Now for many of us uh, who are part of night church here, we know that food uh, generally is a pretty central part of our gatherings. Uh, It shapes our growth groups. Uh, It shapes a lot of our weeks after church. And in many respects, this is a great thing. But the question is, do you treat the nourishing sustenance of the Word of God with the same level of enjoyment, the same level of satisfaction, and the same level of importance as eating a good full meal? In other words, do you have a healthy diet when it comes to the Word of God? So, in the end, the first temptation, Jesus trusts the Father. He trusts that even moments from starvation, the Father will take care of him. And so the devil loses this round. Jesus won, Satan nil. But this loss, uh, for all intents and purposes, it almost seems a little bit like water off a duck's back because the devil doesn't give up. Instead, he changes tactic. So if targeting Jesus' weak spot, targeting his stomach after 40 days of fasting doesn't work, perhaps attacking Jesus where he is strongest might, challenging Jesus' devotion and reliance on the holy word of God. So in the second temptation, uh, he takes Jesus to a place full of holy things. So in verse 5, if you follow along, you see Jesus is taken to a holy city or the holy city. He's placed on the highest point of the holy temple where Satan recites Jesus, the holy scriptures. Holy, holy, holy. If Satan can't attack us from a worldly sense, targeting our material and our fleshly needs, perhaps he can make us super spiritual. In fact, arrogantly spiritual by suggesting that we take leaps of faith. And so here Satan picks up on Jesus' rebuttal, In the first temptation, Jesus quotes the scriptures. Satan notices this, and so what does he do? He decides to use the scriptures against Jesus. He's kind of saying, so you trust the word of God. All right, I can see that now. Well, how about we put this trust to the test? You see, Jesus, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So why not throw yourself off here, off the pinnacle of the temple, and see how much you really trust God's word. Here we have the devil using the source of some of the most radical evil on the face of the planet. That is the perverse use of scriptures. And the temptation for Jesus is to allow a perverted application of the scriptures to define his actions, to literally take a leap of faith, to show that he puts his money where his mouth is in an act of trust in God's word. The devil, in effect, is asking Jesus to glorify God by demonstrating that he actually trusts in the promises of God contained within the scriptures. It's a pretty hard sell. But Jesus' response in this situation, I think it's even more incredible than Satan picking up on Jesus using the scriptures. Jesus responds using what I would consider uh, one of the first principles of biblical interpretation that I think every Christian must have at their disposal. That is, Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, let's take a look. So Satan in the second temptation is quoting Psalm 91. Some of your Bibles might have a footnote showing you where all these come from. This one's from Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. If you were to flick to your Bibles to Psalm 91, you don't have to do it now, uh, but I do encourage you to do it at some point. If you were to flick there and read the whole Psalm in its entirety, it is about God's protecting love. It's true. But... And here's where Jesus adds the little asterisk to the quote from Satan. Psalm 91 doesn't say anything about throwing ourselves onto a busy highway in the name of Jesus to say he's going to protect us if we jump into a fire or off a cliff. It's not asking Jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the temple to test this divine protection. It's not asking us to be silly in our Christian walks to make foolish decisions because, hey, God will protect us anyway. You know, look how much faith I have. And Jesus knows this. And so he rebuts Satan's use of Psalm 91 with another text from Deuteronomy, saying, It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus knows Psalm ninety one. He's not ignorant to what it says. But he also knows what it isn't saying. We're not to be stupid with our Christian walks, taking irrational leaps of faith, as if somehow that were an act of demonstrating godly faithfulness. Now, I think it's extremely important, as Jesus is criticising this psalm, to note what he doesn't say. Right? He doesn't say that Psalm 91 is wrong. He doesn't say that it is inferior in any way. He doesn't even appeal to reason or experience. He doesn't say it shouldn't be believed on the basis of reason. No, he simply interprets scripture in light of scripture. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Let's not throw ourselves under the bus or off a cliff and think that somehow it's a show of godly faithfulness. So finally, if we keep moving on, the third temptation. This is a big one. See, Jesus... He fights the devil here, and the devil fights back by scrapping any use of the scriptures. He's done with that tactic. He's done targeting Jesus in his weak spots as well. This time, Satan goes for the jugular. He comes right up to Jesus and he offers him a shortcut into glory, offering all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor in exchange for a simple and brief act of worship. To achieve power, and dominion over the world through a simple act of homage to God's rival. You know, a sidestepping of the cross, a sidestepping of the suffering and of the shame, and entering a type of glory that sort of loosely reflects the role of the Messiah, right, a lordship over the earth, a shortcut which bypasses the cross. Now, if we consider this, and we know later on in Matthew's Gospel, we have Peter. The Apostle Peter, great Apostle Peter, doubting Peter, whatever you want to call him, he famously pulls Jesus aside after Jesus tells him that he had to suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he had to be killed and then raised to life. So after Peter hears this, what does he do? Well, he offers Jesus the same deal that the devil offers him. He says, never, Lord, Never shall this happen to you. You aren't going to the cross. You can bypass the suffering. You can bypass the cross, is what Peter tells Jesus. And Jesus rightly says, this is a very famous point, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see, Jesus was tempted by this. Absolutely. And it's the same thing here in this temptation. Satan is offering Jesus something which tempts him to bypass the cross, to ignore the concerns and the plans of his father. But just as he's done so consistently, Jesus rebukes Satan. And he pulls out another scripture from his bag and he says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only And the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. And so this brings us down to point three. Uh, Jesus shows us that the devil has been defeated with the Word of God. Now if you guys uh, were part of our Bible study two weeks ago, or you came to morning church, uh, you'd be somewhat familiar with Annie, my wife's famous checkerboard biscuits. It's this kind of half chocolate, half vanilla biscuit that's put in kind of like a chessboard. Uh, it's her weapon of choice when it comes to entertaining a crowd and it never seems to fail. Uh, everyone loves these biscuits. They're always a hit. Well, here in Matthew 4, in all three temptations, Jesus' weapon of choice, it's not shortbread, it's the word of God. It is a mighty weapon. And what's supremely comforting about this, that is using a, a common source is that it's, accept, uh, it's accessible to the rest of us. In order to battle against the schemes of Satan, Jesus uses something we can all use. He doesn't unleash his divine wrath on Satan, at least not yet. Ultimately, he will do this later on in the Gospel. But here, to fight these temptations, he simply thrusts forward the word of God, and Satan is beaten every single time. He didn't use anything that would jeopardise his solidarity with humanity. He didn't appeal to things which are beyond us, you know, more spectacular proofs of God's love and care for him, like turning stones into bread or having angels carry him on their hands off the pinnacle of the temple. Rather, he endured the struggle. He endured each temptation by trusting the words of his father at his baptism by trusting the word of God in the Bible. He didn't lean on his own understanding, humanly speaking, but in all his ways, he acknowledged the Father. He trusted the Father who made his paths straight. A Father who led him into the wilderness, who he trusted would ultimately lead him out of it. And so I think for us, as we consider why Matthew included this, this account of Jesus wrestling with Satan in his gospel, um, I think there are two things worth reflecting on. One is the text shows us just how weak and helpless Satan is against the word of God, that he really is a pathetic and weak enemy. In fact, if you were to read the whole of Matthew, you would see he is portrayed as trembling every time he meets Jesus the word of God. Now Satan, he's been called a master of a thousand arts and Martin Luther, I love this quote, he says, what then shall we call God's word? If Satan is a master of a thousand arts, what shall we call God's word, which easily conquers and humiliates that master with all his wile and power? This text shows us how powerful the word of God really is and how weak the devil is by comparison. The word of God is a mighty weapon. Now, the second thing the text shows us is that as Christians, we don't need to appeal to the more spectacular uh, proofs, in inverted commas, you know, proofs of God's love and care for us. You see, Jesus, he had a choice in these temptations. He could trust the words of the Father, you are my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. He could trust the truthfulness of the scriptures from Deuteronomy, which he used every single time against Satan. Or he could have keeled over and trusted the more spectacular signs of literally turning stones into bread and being carried off on the hands of angels. And I think occasionally as Christians, we tend to seek these fancier signs, these bigger signs as proof of our relationship with God, proof that he really does love us you know, conquering those sins overnight or having that anxiety or depression cured because of the victory that we have in Christ. And I think we need to be extremely careful with these types of arguments as proof of God's transforming love and care. Now, there certainly can be, don't hear me wrong here. But to seek these kinds of proofs, I think risks ignoring the real transformation in the lives of the followers of Christ. Because the real transformation is shown, I think, in the seemingly mundane. It's shown in the ordinary, the daily plotting of life which simply trusts in God's word. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that that is the true transformation. Someone whose life is ordinary, with all of its struggles and temptations and failures, but someone who day-to-day puts their trust in the Word of God anyway. Someone who puts their trust in the works of Christ. Someone who knows that they're a forgiven sinner, guided into life as the Spirit illuminates the words of Jesus in this book that we all have access to called the Holy Bible. In fact, everything we do in Christian ministry, right, I think the, the reason we should all get up in the morning the reason we we tell our friends and family about Jesus is because we should be ruled by the word of God. You see, it guides us in truth. It is a light unto our path. It defends us against the evil one. It transforms lives, bringing us to a knowledge of life, a knowledge of truth, a knowledge of the Son. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It feeds the spiritually hungry. It is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And here in Matthew 4, Jesus shows us that it is a mighty, mighty weapon to wield. And so I think as we finish up, the most appropriate action we can do is give thanks to God that he has given us his word and to give it a fresh appreciation in our lives this week. So why don't we finish up by praying and thanking God for these things. Father God, we thank you so much for these words in Matthew 4. Lord, we thank you for Jesus' full and complete trust in your word in the face of temptation and doubt. And thank you that he succeeds where we have failed. Lord, help us to fight the evil one with your word, knowing that he is defeated enemy in the hands of Christ. And Lord, help us to be feeding on your word daily. May it shape us, may it mould us, May it turn us more and more into the likeness of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.